Welcome to Drinks at Work from Boothby with Sam Bygrave. That is me. Have you ever thought about starting your own liquor brand or opening your own distillery? My guest on this episode is the award-winning bartender Tim LaFerla, and he has done just that. It's called Damaged Goods Distilling Co., which is just a great name if you ask me. In this interview, we talk about his start in Perth bars, including the seminal bar Mechanics Institute, how his time working in London for Michelin chefs and in zero-waste venues shaped his thinking, and how he and his partner Pierre Papenfuss have gone about setting up Damaged Goods Distilling Co., and why they're using food waste to make their spirits. He's a super smart guy, and there's a lot to learn from his experience. It's a great chat. But before we get to my chat with Tim O'Fuller, there's a brief message from our sponsor. The third masterclass of the Bourbon and Bubble series from Angel's Envy, in collaboration with Behind the Bar with Cara Devine, will be held at 2.30 p.m. on Monday, October 30, at Whiskey and Ailment, with the bar manager Lachlan Watt and the Mulberry Group's Kayla Seso. They will cover Koji fermentation and bottle conditioned cocktails. The final class will be held at 2.30pm on Tuesday, November 14, at PAR, talking on imitation ferments and forced carbonation with Tim Pope and Tony Huang. And they'll be joined by Tom McHugh from Hazel. Cara Devine will be taking over the bar after the masterclass to close out the series. You can get more details at the link in our story online at boothby.com.au today, or go to the link pleaseandthanks.melbourne slash angels-envy-bourbon-bubbles. Okay, here's Tim LaFella now from Damaged Goods Distilling Co. Tim LaFella, thanks for joining me on Drinks at Work from Boothby. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. Uh, how's it going over there? I imagine you're quite busy right now because you've got a uh, distillery that you're sort of getting up and running. Yeah, so um, Damaged Goods is only about a month old now. Um, yeah. So yeah, four weeks, I think it is. And yeah, in that time, we've done a launch into the trade with like bars and bottle shops and restaurants and whatnot. And then um, last weekend, we opened our like little tasting room that we have at the distillery, just like 24 right. seats to the public. And it's just yeah. me and my partner, Pia, no one else. We don't have any staff or anything like that yet. So <laughs> yeah, busy busy is probably an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right, well, we're going to get into a bit more about damaged goods distilling shortly, but um, set the table for people a little bit. You're a, an award-winning bartender. How'd you get into the, the bar and drinks world in the first place? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a bit of a silly story how I ended up in hospitality, really. Um when I was younger, I was a very shy kind of geeky kid and I yeah. kind of wanted to push myself not to be that. <laughs> right. So I, I, I basically got into bartending to try and, yeah, force myself to be more social, I guess. <laughs> well, you, you don't have much choice there, do you? <laughs> no, it's kind of sink or swim, right? <laughs> yeah. Where did you, you start bartending? Yeah, so I started bartending at kind of pubs and well, yeah, first first job was a pub here in Perth that no longer exists. Um, right. And then not long after that, I started, yeah, I was still at uni at the time. I've done quite a few or attempted, I should say, quite a few different uni vocations. Um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I've done half an electrical engineering degree. I've got a physiotherapy degree, which I don't use. Yeah. Um, I've done a little bit of marketing now as well. So, well, that's, yeah, that's kind of handy. Yeah, a bit of marketing, yeah, oh. a little bit of electrical engineering is probably coming in handy right now. <laughs> the physio, the physio definitely comes in handy as well when you've done a long shift and you're starting to break down and getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, and now you, I think we kind of first really encountered each other when you were at Scout in Sydney. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, 
that was, yeah, my, my hospitality journey, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's pretty long. So after working in the pubs, um, I ended up, uh, going into working in nightclubs while I was still at uni. And then um, from there, the guy that owned one of the nightclubs I was working in, he was opening a cocktail bar and he was like, oh, you seem to know what you're doing. So do you want to come and work in this cocktail bar? Um, And that place- I love the the qualifications for that is great. (laughs) You seem (laughs) to know what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing was, I didn't really have any idea about cocktails at the time. He was just like, oh, you seem to know what you're doing, but I didn't. Um, Anyway, I only ended up, being a bartender there and I end up learning off other people um, yeah. the whole cocktail side of things and really pushing myself by entering competitions and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, from there after that, that was Malt Supper Club, which no longer exists and that's a whole oh, yeah. other story entirely, but probably not for the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> okay, right. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up joining a bunch of, uh, bunch of friends and opening Mechanics Institute. Right, here. yes. And that was like, yeah. Like 10 years ago now. Yeah, it's 10 years from Mechanics Institute. That's crazy, right? Yeah, I think it was actually last year they had their 10th anniversary. So, right. Yeah, it's pretty well, crazy. Can, for people from, who are not from WA or from Perth uh, who maybe haven't heard of Mechanics Institute, it's quite a, a seminal bar in the Perth bar scene, right? Can you describe yeah. it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely the kind of one of the seminal bars of the modern Perth cocktail bar era, I would say. There's, there's some other ones before that. Um, but yeah, Mechanics Institute was really, yeah, a bit of a turning point, I guess, for the Perth hospitality scene. And there was a lot of other bars kind of happening at that time as well. Um, mm. yeah, like yeah, we had a kind of, uh, we had a pretty good team at the time, um, and it got a lot of attention and then it's still going today, which I guess is a testament to the bar. Yeah. Uh, now you did some time in the UK, did you? Yeah. So after that, I did the first year at Mechanics and then I moved to the UK and kind of, I found a niche, um, working with chefs. So right. I worked with a couple of different Michelin starred chefs and for another company called Caprice Holdings, which they're not Michelin star, but they're very famous restaurants. Probably the bar in Caprice Holdings that people are more familiar with is um, Sexy Fish. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So before Sexy Fish, I, when I was working for them, there was a bar called Bamboo, um, which was essentially um, – it was a Pan-Asian restaurant. We had a little cocktail bar at the top called the Red Bar. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was managing the bar there. And uh, that was the start of Sexy Fish's Japanese whiskey collection. So, right. yeah, I was helping to put together that. And now, then it got transplanted into Sexy Fish when that closed down. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I worked with another couple of chefs over there, Jason Atherton, um, who had some very well-known bars at the time too. Mm. Um, and another chef called Simon Rogan, who I think he's doing a pop-up in Sydney at the moment somewhere. What, what sort of attracted you to working in that sort of restaurant chef kind of world yeah. from a bar perspective? I mean, I guess part of it was myself, my own personality, being a perfectionist and kind of if you see all those chefs, they are too, and very career-driven and um, Hardworking, I guess. I mean, not that anyone in hospitality isn't hardworking, but like that Michelin star chef is like, yeah, it's a crazy world. Honestly, it's it's absolutely yeah. insane. And looking back on it, I don't even know how I did it. <laughs> Would you recommend it for other people today? Um, if you have the right personality for it, yes. If you don't, stay clear. <laughs> okay, what, like, what's the right it, personality? What do you honestly? Want it, it was take? insane. You have to be, yeah. Well. The thing is, and working for chef-led companies in that kind of 
environment. It was, yeah, some of the chefs there, they would come in at eight at the morning and leave at one in the morning. And that would be four or five days a week. And they didn't expect front of house to do exactly that, but the expectations were pretty high. Mm. And yeah, I couldn't do that anymore. It's absolutely, it's not sustainable for anyone. Um, Mm. (laughs) And all it leads to is problems with drugs and all other sorts of things. So Yeah. yeah, not my jam anymore, but (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was definitely an experience, that's for sure. <laughs> well, you got it under your belt now, right? You can, yeah. You can never, I, no one can ever accuse you of not working hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then so you came, you came back to, from the UK. Yeah. What happened Yeah, then? so I came back from the UK and I started um, working at Charlie Parker's. Um, yeah. I skipped, a, I skipped a whole chef in London, actually, which is kind of the story of damaged goods. Um part of the story of damaged goods. Anyway, uh, the last chef I worked there was called Adam Handling and he was doing um, a lot of stuff. And he now has a Michelin star as well. And he was trying to take the zero waste kind of approach and apply it to Michelin star cooking, which is quite hard really because if you see everything like it's trimmed perfectly and Mm. cut perfectly on a plate. Mm. Um, And then, yeah, coming back to Sydney, I kind of ended up gravitating towards people and bars with that kind of a concept I started working at Charlie Parker's yep um and yeah I was bar manager and then venue manager there for a year or so and then following that I yeah I was kind of at a crossroads and didn't know what I really wanted to do with myself um so I started doing a grad cert in marketing and I was working at with Matt Wiley at Scout Mm. so uh what about what is it from your time in those kind of bars those sort of uh that approach Want to approach zero waste, probably never going to get there with zero waste. But what is it yeah. about working in those kind of bars that kind of gets you excited, gets you interested? Why do you care so much about that sort of side of the drinks world? Yeah, I mean, there's two parts of it. One is I grew up in a property out in the hills here in Perth and we have 22, we, well, my stepdad and my mum have 22 acres out there and we used to have this massive orchard of oranges And Mm -hmm. it was just crazy seeing how hard it was because the oranges that we had were Valencia oranges, which are amazing in the summer, um, but they're smaller and they have seeds. So no supermarket buys them because of that. They would rather, if you have a look in Coles at the kind of this time of year, you'll find navels from America, Yeah, even though there's oranges that do actually grow in Australia. And then he ended up selling it juicing companies, um, but even that was a bit of a struggle. So right. he ended up demolishing the whole orchard pretty much because wow. the upkeep of it was more expensive than what he was getting for it. Mm. Um, and then up in that area, kind of everyone knows everyone, and he always used to tell me this story about how, I won't name which one, but he his friend was supposed to sell a, a ton of turnips to a major supermarket, yeah. And they ended up getting rejected because the stems were cut five millimeters too short. Um, You're joking. So, yeah, because you go to the supermarket, like- you pick up a turnip and go, oh, it's the stem's a bit short. I'll put that one back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, too, yeah. it's all about stem selection. Right. Yeah. And I mean, beyond sustainability and food waste and all that, I mean, just that's just a tactic for them to squeeze the money. And, you know, they'll come back the next week and be like, oh, we'll, we'll buy them now because no one else is buying them, but we'll pay you cents on the dollar. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, so I mean, it's absurd. Really. Well, it's absurd that we're in a position like that, right? Where you have two large sort of supermarket chains that can have that so much buying power like that. that yeah. I mean, five millimeters on a stem for a turnip. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. 
It's crazy, <laughs> the spec that they put on it. And then now I go into the supermarkets and you see like the imperfect pixel, however you, however they want to call it. Um, yeah. And I look at them sometimes like, they look better than the ones in the other that, that you're paying more for. Like this makes no sense. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, yeah. But some of the things they do, it's like about the sizing and things like that, where they grade them. It's just, it's just insane. Yeah. Well, like, I guess when you really do think about it, you think about how uniform the fruit looks. That's not, that's not nature. That's not like life. Things don't grow exactly exactly the same size, you know, just look around at people that, you know, yeah. If you really think about it, it's kind of messed up if food is judged first on looks beyond all else. And then that's kind of the measuring factor because we eat food for flavor and nutrition, but yeah. then we're judging it on looks first. It, it, it actually makes no sense at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we would have got very far uh, in our eating habits, uh, you know, millennia ago. <laughs> That's how we approached it. Like, <laughs> who, who first ate an oyster? That kind of thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> After living in Sydney, kind of, I moved to Perth with my partner, Pia. Um, yeah. And she, and well, yeah, we, it was all about setting up the distillery. We moved to Perth for right. that reason um, because we wanted to stay with the concept. I didn't think anyone would be crazy enough to kind of invest in that. So we did it all off our own back and yeah, doing it in Sydney would have been really tough because mm. cost of everything, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> property, no property in Sydney is much more expensive. I mean, yeah. not that it's that much better now in Perth, but we also have the support <laughs> of my family over here too, which helps. Um, yeah. And so, so, yeah, so I, what's the elevator pitch for damaged goods distilling? What's the idea? Well, look, yeah, I mean, the, the concept's pretty simple, really. All our spirits are made with food waste of some description, whether that be, I guess there's two parts to that. There's the part where um, stuff that gets rejected by the supermarkets may not even leave the farm or maybe it just goes back, it's like, goes brown like a banana in a supermarket or the mm. other part of it is like the real nitty-gritty food waste which at the moment we work with two different juicing companies and a cider maker for example to take citrus husks and apple pulp yeah um so th- the concept is pretty simple really i'm trying to create that kind of like spirit alternative that's approachable easy drinking to in a i'm not, I'm not trying to make anything that's you know wacky or wild or anything like that it's not supposed to be like you know they're very relatable flavors um Mm. but done in an interesting way with an interesting ingredient and i guess the idea is to prove to people that food it's redefining food waste essentially it's like showing people that a high quality product can be made with food waste yeah well i mean that's also kind of distilling right that's it's happened a lot in the past yeah, look, working with Matt and working with Adam Handling and even at Charlie Parker's as well, it was kind of, that was kind of one of the light bulb moments for us because a lot of what people were doing was fermentation and distillation. And I was mm. like, that's spirits. <laughs> and then <laughs> yep. the other part of it was seeing, I won't uh, mention any names again because don't want to get you in trouble with any sponsors, but um, seeing (laughs) a lot of large companies kind of pushing that angle and even, you know, running cocktail competitions to and getting bartenders to do it. And I was like, why are they not doing this themselves then? It's kind (laughs) of like, yeah, it's kind of ironic. So, Why um, why do you think the big companies haven't done something like this? Is it because to scale it massively would be more difficult or...? I don't know. Well, there is one company that's trying to do it. It's just not available in Australia as a right. product. 
Um, but yeah, for me, it's kind of disappointing about some of the large ones is even a lot of their sustainability practices they do now, they're kind of just, they're things they've done for decades and then they're just repackaging it because as something else from a marketing point of view, because sustainability is the trend. Yeah. And to me, it just kind of seems a little disingenuous. Um, It's like, oh, we recycle, our water goes back into, like for condensers, it goes back into the river. Well, yeah, you did that because you probably did that for the last 200 years because that's why every Scottish distillery is right next to a massive body of water. Yeah, it's Um, because the Scots are cheap. They don't want to spend money, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and (laughs) You try to save as much money as you can and that means, you know, using these kind of methods. Yeah, and and I'm all for that, but it's Mm. like, you know, tell things for what they are, don't kind of you know try and dress them up as something they're not and you know we do a lot of that stuff at this distillery as well um yeah and it's hard it's harder being a smaller distillery obviously because these things cost money they save money in the long term but they cost money um and i'm all for doing it as you know because every little bit is amazing and every little bit counts but yeah if you've been doing it for like 50 years already dressing it up as something new and innovative is a bit bit bullshit really <laughs> yeah no 100 100 uh well let's let's walk us through you got two skews at the moment tell yeah. me about the let's start with the the appley one what's it called yeah again? so um honestly the the i the the story of coming up with the apple aperitivo is a bit stupid really it's delicious um, by the way I, oh I really thank you it. Yeah. <laughs> um so i was i wanted to do you know aperol spritzes just went absolutely mental the last however <laughs> many years now um and i was like oh i want to do something that's good for spritzes it's just fun um and accessible and i was Mm. like oh aperol aperitivo kind of sounds like apples so then (laughs) (laughs) that's the creative process (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, seriously and then we have a cider maker called funk cider literally just down the road from the distillery so i was like okay cool i've got apples i've got um the aperitivo, then I, you know, as a bartender coming up with all stupid puns like <laughs> apple TiVo and apple roll and stuff like that. And yeah. Then uh, the branding people that helped me do my labels and stuff like, nah, that's a stupid idea. So then I was like, oh, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but the apple stuck around. So, um, so then, yeah, I was just like, what, how can I get the best out of these apples? Um, and yeah, it's been a real interesting process. Um, coming up with all these ideas and kind of taking what I learned from people like Matt and Adam and then, yeah, refining it and scaling it is the hardest thing because doing things yeah. for a bar setting is one thing, but then doing it for a commercial product is another. Yeah. What's um, what's the scale of the distillery? Like how, how big is your still on that sort of thing? Yeah. Look, our still is, I guess, for where we are at the moment and where a lot of distillers started out, it's fairly sizable. It's 330 litres. Yeah. Um, which is still not big. Like you go and have a look at a still for, you know, beef eater or something and it's tens of thousands of liters. So. Yeah. Yeah. But then you, you hear stories about some people like, I don't know, never, never or something. And they started off with probably a still that was a third the size maybe. <laughs> yeah. I think it sounds about probably the size that four pillars started with, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so look yeah, at them I, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I could only dream of doing that <laughs> at this point. We're, we're four weeks old. Very um, good. But, yeah, I mean, even that at the moment, we're not even filling it to its capacity. The The reason why I got the 330-litre still was because I wanted to have a bigger one because I'm not just want, wanting to do stuff where I'm using neutral spirit 
which is common amongst 95% of the distilling industry that makes gin. Um, mm. But yeah, actually creating base spirit as well. We do okay. use neutral spirit, but I've got my next product, which isn't ready yet. Um, that one we'll be making some of the base spirit ourselves too. So what, like, so, so getting the, the fermentable ingredients in, making the wine and then distilling. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. That's yeah. exciting. Do you want to um, share any news about that yet? Or are you still under wraps? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's already on our website. So, yeah. um, the next product in the works is a, is a vodka, which I'm working with a cooperative of uh, family growers up in Carnarvon of bananas. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Cause bananas are the most wasted fruit. If my research is correct. <laughs> I've heard that as well, actually. Yeah. Um, and bananas are a funny one because all the waste happens at the beginning and the very end of the supply chain. Either they never leave the farm at all or mm. they go to brown in someone's house or at the supermarket. Yeah. Um, because they're picked unripe and then sometimes artificially ripened after that by gassing them. So right. they're picked green. And um, so... I, I was speaking to this, I'll, I, so I contacted this cooperative growers and they were like, we have more bananas of the lowest grade than we can ever get rid of. They literally just get thrown back onto the banana fields. Right, just onto um, the ground. Yeah, onto the ground. Yeah. Um, and they were like, the only people that are buying these at the moment are people that make banana bread and ice cream. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And I don't think there's enough banana bread and ice cream in the world to use them all. So No, not so much. Not so, so much. So I was like, cool, bananas are quite sweet. And, you know, having worked with Matt and stuff before, I've seen them make banana juice or banana wine or whatever. I was like, we could do something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've been working um, with an enzyme company as well um, and their kind of technical sales manager, I think is his official title, but basically he has a PhD in, um, microbiology and mm. I've been working out for all my products actually to a degree. Well, the, the Aperitivo as well, actually, I've been trying to experiment with different enzymes, which are actually quite traditional in brewing and, um, winemaking and, and distilling, um, yeah. to work out protocols of using these enzymes to extract more um, either flavor or fermentable sugars from the various ingredients. Right. Um, so it's quite technical really. Um, yeah. but the, it's, it's technical, the theory, but the process is pretty straightforward. Yeah. So basically the, put the ends, use this enzyme product on, on the bananas that you got, it's going to help break it down more or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the common one that. And then probably, you'll make your banana wine from it and then you distill that and redistill that. Yeah, exactly. So the, the common one that everyone kind of in the bar world is using at the moment is Pectinex, which yeah. you know, brewers and cider makers and stuff use it. It's it's a it's a type of pectinase essentially, which breaks down the pectin in the fruit. Um, there's there's a few other things in bananas and other ingredients as well, like starches and things, which you need to use other enzymes like um, amylase, for example, mm -hmm. um, which again is something very traditional in uh, in whiskey making as an example, because the malting process creates amylase or if you're making corn or, um, some, or some kind of whiskey like that, um, then you need to add amylase because it gets killed during the process. So you either need right. to add, that's why, for example, uh, rye whiskey might have a 5% quantity of malted barley in it, say, um, even if they've got like 95% because that's, they're adding the amylase through, through the malted okay. barley. Gotcha. Um, or if they don't, if it's a hundred percent rye, then they would have to add it in another way. 
Right. Um, okay. We'll have to malt the rye. And so, so what, with, with the vodka, what's the finished product? Are you going to go for that neutral character or? Yeah, so it's the idea is it's banana in name but not in nature. So it's still very <laughs> classic in style. I like that. That's very nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks to Mike Randon, guys, for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so the idea, it's very classic in style but trying to get some of those more textural aspects of the bananas. Um, there'll still be a little bit of flavor because my still isn't, you know, I don't have like a hundred foot high, uh, column still. Yeah. Um, because yeah, to get it truly neutral is yeah, absolutely insane. The kind of still you would need. Um, but yeah, it will still have a bit of character from the bananas, but yeah, more, more towards the classic end of the spectrum. Okay. And talk, talk us through the, uh, the citrus spirit that you've got. Yeah. So that one is a gin. So a bit more. I guess, easy to understand. So that one is fairly straightforward. I just packed the still full of the citrus husks. Um, and I mean, it would have been very easy, I guess, for me to make a gin that um, is, you know, it tastes like citrus and nothing else, but there's a couple of those around already. So I wanted to really get a <laughs> good, if I, was gonna put, those, yeah. <laughs> if I was going to put gin on the label, it had to taste like juniper. So. <laughs> well, you'd be, come on, you know. Not everyone follows that rule, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just played around with trying to get in the balance. And 90% of what goes into the still is citrus husks. So I use four different kinds of citrus husks. I use lemon, lime, um, orange, and grapefruit. And I don't do any special treatment to those. I literally just put them in a vapor chamber and they get vapor infused. Yeah, um, nice. And that was kind of interesting actually as well because – when I started, you know, getting more involved in the distilling community, I had a lot of distillers go to me, oh, you can't do that because you'll get the bitterness out of the pith. Or um, they would tell me, oh, it's too much citrus. You're going to have problems with louching. Um, but, yeah, I played around with it and I was thinking about it in my head too. And I was like, well, people like Four Pillars or Tanqueray 10 or whatever, they use the whole fruit and yeah. everyone else just uses the peels. Like, I'm just doing what's in the middle. It can't be that different. <laughs> is, do you find that there's a bit of, like, a bit of, oh, we've always done it this way, so therefore we've got to do it this way when it comes to distilling? Because it sounds oh, absolutely. like- Well, it's, cause it's meant to be quite, well, it's quite a scientific process when you think about it, but there seems to be this sort of tradition thing as well. Absolutely. It's very much an industry that can very easily get stuck in tradition. Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I guess- it's it's hard because a lot of people that are distillers don't necessarily understand the scientific you don't need to know the scientific process behind it especially if right. you've got a brew like the probably honestly the distilling part is fairly straightforward brewing is like a whole nother ball game and making the base products i find that much harder i mean right. if you really want to simplify distilling is easy especially if you're using like a pot still you whack it in you stop you st you take your heads cut when it starts tasting nice and then you stop collecting your heart's cup when it stops tasting nice and then that's it. <laughs> well, I guess you just got to know when it tastes nice and when it doesn't, Exactly. Right? <laughs> if you've got a good palate, you're set. <laughs> yeah, okay, gotcha. Um, whereas, yeah, there's just so many more variables in brewing like pHs and temperatures. and I mean, you can go to that degree in distilling as well, but you don't have to if you don't want to too. Right. Um, but in, in brewing, yeah, it's much more particular and if you don't control those variables in brewing you can have a wildly different result yeah when it comes to i mean making the product is one thing right and you're a, 
an accomplished bartender who obviously yeah. <laughs> got know, know how to taste things and make things taste good. That's one part of it. Uh, but all the logistics, A, of getting up, I'm not even going to get into setting up the distillery, but how do you then yeah. go about getting this stuff into a bottle, whacking a label on it that's going to appeal to customers, getting it out to a market and going from there? What, yeah. how, how have you approached this kind of challenge? Yeah, honestly, it's taken about oh, a good from, yeah, 18 months probably to get to this point, I yeah. would say. Um, the I mean, I had a pretty clear vision in my head before I started about what the brand was going to look like um, and what it was, yeah. I had all I had it all mapped out in front of me pretty much before before we even before I even started distilling. Um, I already knew right. what I wanted to do. Maybe I didn't have the exact products, yeah. but I knew kind of roughly what I wanted to do. And the concept, the concept, the yeah. concept makes it so easy actually because the concept just we come back to that. It's like, are we, you know, are we staying true to that concept and just doing everything that mm. and and thinking about that with every single decision we make it's kind of like yeah it doing the right thing by the environment and um trying to minimize our own waste and footprint like that's our guiding principle so every decision we make yeah. comes back to that in a way so that actually made it super easy because it means when you're looking at packaging you think about that um and mm. i always say this as well that sustainability isn't perfect and no one can be perfect at it and whether they will ever be perfect at it, um, probably not. <laughs> well, and there's something inherently like wasteful about sustainability, sorry, about distilling sometimes. You know, there's a lot of wastewater yeah. that happens. and Yeah, of course. Yeah. And there's systems and stuff you can put in place, but also like. It's quite energy intensive. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you're boiling and then recondensing a big old pot of liquid. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, as well, we are just a small outfit. I don't have any investors. I'm self-funded. At the moment, I don't even have a bank loan. I've just got a bit of a loan to my parents, and that's about it. But um, Very nice. Yeah. But, and, and within that, there's only so much you can do. So we do everything we can within our means, and I'm quite open and transparent about that because yeah. if you don't start in the first place, then nothing will ever change. And I think a lot of people have in this head this kind of like black and white image. It's like, oh, if we can't make a tangible or big impact, we shouldn't do anything. But if everyone thinks like mm. that, then nothing will ever change. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very good point. Yeah. So. Well, I guess part of it's just the doing as well, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, so we always come back to that guiding principle in everything we do. So when we were setting up the distillery, it's like, when we were looking for a site, we chose the site that we have because it's got a different water, um, which is also was a part of our downfall. That's another story. Um, <laughs> in planning approvals and stuff, which, yeah, don't get me started on oh, that. Right. Um, but, yeah, our, our, our wastewater treatment on site isn't a traditional septic system. It's an aerobic treatment unit, which basically is a big pond which has its little microbiome of bacteria which break, breaks down um, the wastewater before it goes into the ground. Um, okay, wow. So we've, we've basically used that kind of guiding principle at every single point of the, of the process of building the brand, whether it's like, I don't yeah. know, you choose your still, okay, we go for electric still, so even though we can't afford solar panels now, one day we can. Or if it's, mm. I don't know, if it's the labels, like what are the labels made from? What, what is the weight of the glass bottle? Um, 
What are the labels? Uh, it's just like a recycled paper. I mean, we get what we can with, like I said, we get what yeah. we can within our means, but it's like, you know, and then, it, and you just use that kind of those guiding principles at every point. It actually makes the brand building process much easier. It's like, then you start talking to, I don't know, a distributor, who are you going to go with for a distributor? So you start talking to ones that more align with your values or, yeah. um, do you, do you have a distributor? We don't at the home? moment. It's just me out in yeah. Perth hustling with my van or sending <laughs> cases for a few people over east at the moment. Um, there's yeah. a couple I'm kind of talking to at the moment, but yeah, work in progress. Um, at the well, look, if anyone's listening to this, then they want to jump on this. Quick, <laughs> having tasted, having tasted liquid is delicious. Oh, thank so. you. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it actually made doing the concept that we're doing and doing it because me and Pia believe in it. Um, and Pierre as well, her background, um, she used to work and that's how we met. She was, uh, the sous chef at Fred's working with Danielle Alvarez. Um, right. so she was doing similar things with the whole, you know, nose to tail, root to stem kind of stuff with produce. Um, mm. and so, yeah, our backgrounds were very similar and, and yeah. Um, so, so come, so coming back to the, the question, I guess it's like, yeah, the brand building process was easy because we had that whole principle to guide us the whole way along. Um, and we yeah. built everything around that. Are you going to then like put the bottles into sort of like spirits comps and stuff like that, like judging competitions and like, how do you, how do you go about, I mean, getting the word out that you exist, yeah. right? That's the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, so far the reaction that we've got from both customers and the trade is that, um, at the moment, most of our marketing is me just going out there and forcing people to try it <laughs> and telling the story. Um, well, bigger, bigger brands have been built the same yeah, way, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. Um, and I think having that story and it's kind of the reactions that we're getting so far, it's almost like a magnetic story. Like people just get it straight away and like, holy shit, that's amazing. Um, yeah. because people do care about the environment and reducing their waste. And the idea of damaged goods is to make it easy for people to do their bit. I'm not asking people yeah. to change their habits and drink. Like the whole the whole premise of damaged goods is to be as good, if not better quality than what else is already out there. Um, yeah. But all you have to do to do a little bit better for the environment is choose our product. So it's a very yeah. <laughs> tangible step for someone to make. That works, yeah. And yeah, and then people. Well, if you make it easy for them because it tastes good, then that's exactly. you know, half the battle. Or right? It's an it becomes yeah. a no brainer decision for someone, and that's and that yeah. kind of whole premise seems to be yeah it seems to be working so far because yeah the the reactions we've got from consumers when we do uh, you know tastings we've only done one weekend now at the cellar door or at bottle shops or going out and getting bartenders yeah. to try it. Um, the reactions we're getting is just, it's crazy. Like the the post on WA Bartenders that we did when we first launched, like I literally, it was my first day out hustling in bars and stuff and went to see a few mates in the yeah. city, um, walked into one, came out of the other. I was like, fuck, this is hard work. <laughs> 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 this is hard work, you know, sell a bottle yeah. to put on the back yeah. bar. It's not going to change the world for me. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll put a post on WA Bartender to see what happens. Walk into another bar, got another bar, a bottle on a back bar. Um, and then I came out and yeah. I was like, holy shit, my phone's just gone insane. There's like 450 people like this post and 80 comments. That's great. Um, that's, oh, that's amazing, huh? Hey? 
That's cool. And I was like, maybe I'm onto something. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I reckon you might be. Uh, if there's people over here on the East Coast trying to get a handle, uh, get some of this in their life, how can they go about yeah. it? They can just go to the at website. At the moment, just um, drop me an email um, or send me a message yeah. on Facebook or whatever. It's just uh, tim at damagegoodsdistilling.com.au. Um, and then, yeah. Can they buy online at the website? Um, yeah, for consumers. There's, um, But I can also do, if you contact me directly, you're interested in stocking it in your bars, um, we can potentially get you a wholesale price or something like that. But, yeah, it's awesome. also the website's up and running for if you just want to order a bottle to try yourself too. Wonderful. Uh, can you send it overseas? Um, that's a bit more overseas? complicated at the moment. I did yeah. actually just send a case of bottles overseas because um, a friend of mine um, – probably know Tim Etherington Judge, Avalon. Oh, yeah. So he's doing some presentations about, uh, you know, sustainability in the booze industry and um, in Singapore. Mm. Um, I think it's next Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's got, was it Avalon? Avalon Calvados, yeah. Um, Calvados, yeah. They're, they're big in the sustainability. Yeah, sort of so thing their too. whole thing is to, because, you know, they're trying to be the most planet positive spirits brand. So apples and apple orchards absorb a lot of carbon and then, you know, and they do a lot of work around their packaging and supply chain and similar stuff to right. us, but not using waste, obviously. Um, so, yeah, he's yep. taking a few of my bottles to Singapore and presenting them for me, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> that is cool. Um, yeah. yeah sending good. booze overseas in small quantities is just, yeah, it's very, very expensive. So if people want to do it, I'm more than happy. <laughs> but, yeah, just be warned, it's yeah. ridiculously expensive. <laughs> yeah, buy a pallet. <laughs> yeah. <All right. laughs> Well, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Again, congrats on the juice. It's really delicious. Um, and I would encourage anyone listening to this to get a, get a hold of it because it's good stuff from a, an award-winning bartender. So thanks very much for, for joining me today on Drinks at Work, Yeah, awesome. Tim. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks to Tim for the chat and thank you to you again for listening. As always, if you've enjoyed these chats, please share the podcast with a friend. It helps to get the word out there and helps spread some good stories about great bartenders in this country. And give us a rating in the podcast player of your choice. Until next time, this has been Drinks at Work from Boothby.